Can we turn the lights up a little bit more? Thanks. So hopefully you notice we've made a transition from joy to equanimity. Equanimity can be joyful too. But it's just interesting how um, different ways of connecting with the world bring out different flavors. And the whole point of these four practices we've been doing since June, for those who've been along for the ride, the June class was with loving kindness, the July compassion, Recently, the last four weeks, we've done appreciative joy, or mudita, and now on to equanimity, upeka, is the Pali word. And the idea with these four boundless states of the heart is to uncover, you know, it's just not, it's not really four things we're uncovering, we're just uncovering a heart that is free from clinging, free from obstructions, to some degree at least. And that heart that's relatively or fully free of obstructions, it knows how to relate to life. So when it meets suffering, it relates naturally, effortlessly, frictionlessly with compassion when it meets suffering. And when it meets joy, it relates with joy. And when it meets a friendly situation, It relates with kindness and friendliness. And when we meet a confusing or ambiguous situation, we relate with equanimity. So, I mean, however you want to think about it, we're uncovering the heart that knows how to relate. That great Zen teaching from one of those ancient Chinese Zen masters, maybe it was the fourth patriarch, I can't remember, about the heart with no preference, you know, liberation, freedom is easy for one without any preferences. And this is the, the thing that the heart that's unobstructed, it just, it doesn't need conditions to be differently. It can express its freedom by being compassionate when there's a lot of suffering. And even though being close to suffering and on the one hand might really hurt, compassion is a liberated state. It's not a heavy state. Loving kindness is not a heavy state. Equanimity is not a heavy state, and nor is joy a heavy state. These are expanded or, as we say in the tradition, boundless or immeasurable states of mind, states of heart. And you might maybe even felt that, hopefully, as you practice these four regularly with real sincerity, you'll get a sense of that expanded state that great state of mind, boundless state of mind. And uh, one of the great things about the particular practice of equanimity, you know, whether you like this particular phrase we use tonight or you want to adapt and adjust it, but it's really designed to, um, to sort of the heart to meet things as they are, and to find a way to um, be unflinching, unshakable with conditions. That's the whole idea about equanimity. Remember these four boundless states or natural qualities of the mind that are set forth when the mind connects with things as they are. So the proximate cause for love, for compassion, for joy, for equanimity to sort of unfold, to sort of expand, to bloom, is simply the heart connecting with things as they are. So, as a formal technology, you know, this sort of technology of meditation, what we're doing with the equanimity practice is we're using phrases to direct the attention, the mind, to a particular aspect of things as they are to set equanimity in motion. We're setting it free. We're igniting it, in a sense, 
by reflecting how conditional life actually is, how lawfully it's unfolding, and how happiness arises sometimes and unhappiness arises other times. And there are very happy beings now and there are very unhappy beings now. And as we reflect, as we let or train our heart to get closer and closer to the condi- to the actual conditional nature of life, equanimity gets set forth, this expanded, beautiful state of mind. So as you become, as you sort of own this practice and become more creative with it over the next four weeks, remember, we're just seeing if it's in fact true that when I aim the mind, the heart, toward things as they are, and in particular, things as they are in terms of the conditional nature, the lawfulness, that happiness and unhappiness is a natural, lawful unfolding due to particular innumerable causes and conditions. You see how spacious that is already, just understanding that your happiness my happiness, it isn't personal. It's part of this great web of causes and conditions unfolding. And we have this possibility to relate to that great unfolding, that great interdependent unfolding with wisdom, with equanimity, by just the willingness to be close to the truth of the conditional unfolding. Just like we set compassion free, we set it in motion by just opening, relaxing with suffering, not being afraid of our suffering or somebody else's suffering. Or we set joy in motion by being willing to connect, to be intimate with happiness, with joy around us. Or we set friendliness in motion by just feeling connected with other living beings. Before we go on to talk more generally about equanimity, I thought I'd just take a few minutes or maybe more, see if there are any particular questions about the guided meditation and just about how to practice formally. Because remember, with all four of these Brahma Viharas, divine abodes, it's it's both a, a formal practice. We're taking the quiet time when we're doing our sitting practice, or maybe you can do it during walking too. It just works as well there too. But where we're systematically aiming the mind, cultivating this particular attitude or this particular perspective and noticing the effect or the results. And then, of course, we're doing it through daily life. So it will be important that each of us have enough sense of how to do the formal training. So when we're sitting every day, some of the time at least, we're doing a formal equanimity reflection or contemplation. So any comments about what you've learned in your own practice that you'd like to share with the group or questions? Yeah, Gail. Well, um, there are different equanimities, like there's an equanimity that comes when uh, the defilements, the hindrances are suppressed or distant in the mind. So that would be like the equanimity of jhana or concentrated states. So whatever it is that agitates the mind normally, it's just not there. It's been suppressed because the mind has taken up an object so wholeheartedly that everything else has fallen into the background. And so that's a particular kind of equanimity, that stillness, that peace. And then you mentioned the equanimity of apasana or the equanimity of insight. Well, in a way, the equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara is 
there's sort of two ways to come out or to come at the insight, uh, the equanimity of insight, which is basically the equanimity of not clinging. Right. So there's the equanimity of concentration, and there's the equanimity of insight, which is the mind that may not be concentrated or may not be um, suppressing worldly conditions, but it's not confused by worldly conditions. It has insight and it understands conditions are just conditions and it's not grasping them, taking them personally, so there's equanimity of insight. Now, there's two ways to develop that equanimity of insight. One is to be to just be aware of what's arising, what's predominant, and to see it as a, a movement of nature instead of something personal. So we have a thought, and we notice it's just a thought coming and going. And there's an emotion, and we notice it's just an emotion coming and going. There's pain in the knee, and we notice it's just sensation coming and going. And so that that provokes insight, and insight leads to equanimity or letting the peace of letting go, the peace of not clinging. Now, the other way to uh, bring about that equanimity of insight is to the sincere faith that it's true. And that's like Brahma-Vihara practice. So in this practice, we're, we're saying to ourselves, right, I'm making a statement of faith. This is a lawful universe. Things are unfolding lawfully due to impersonal causes and conditions. I'm not like seeing that directly. I'm reminding myself that I believe this is true. I have faith from my own experience that this is true. So I'm sort of sort of, uh, sort of, uh, acting on faith, right? And then I'll bring to mind a particular person. You know, although I care about you, I understand that your life also is unfolding lawfully. Your happiness and unhappiness is due to these innumerable conditions, including your actions, not my wishes. But I still care about you. I care about you enough to wish that your heart relate to this unfolding of your life with wisdom and equanimity. Because I know it's possible. I know it's possible for you to be intimate, but not attached to have the peace of equanimity. And that's just how I feel. I mean, that, that conviction comes from those moments when I've experienced it myself, where I felt intimate, but the peace of equanimity, just allowing my life to unfold, but not reacting, not uh, getting agitated because of what's happening or not happening. So I think the Brahma-Vihara practice is coming at the same thing we get with Vipassana, but it's, really, it's coming out of it through faith, conviction, as opposed through clear seeing of conditions. But you'll see that they get very close together. Because like when I practice, and I'm bringing people to mind, even though in a sense I'm using my memory, like if I brought wind to mind, or I brought friend to mind, or I brought myself to mind, or I brought all of us together to mind. These are some of the groups that I use tonight. You know or people that I used, <clears throat> you know, even though I'm using my memory or my ideas about all of us together, th- that memory is sort of a reflection of my experience. So, you know, we can basically have insight from hindsight, from, you know, reflecting on hindsight, like what we remember about when, or what do I remember about my friend, or what I, my sense is about all of us together, you know, and how our lives are unfolding and how happiness comes and goes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Enough? Yeah, especially the Brahma-Vihara. Yeah, and then the other thing about the Brahma-Vihara practice, because of the repetition, because it's so structured, agitating forces are suppressed. And we're going to start feeling pretty chilled out, too. So, you know, the Brahma-Viharas, in terms of Buddhist practice, are concentration practices. They're used to experience jhana, deep states of absorption. That's how they were formed, or that's kind of how they came to be, um, part of the tradition. So, you're also, you know, 
get if you if you're really systematic in your repetition and <clears throat> redirecting your attention back to the phrases to the person to the feeling of equanimity you'll also have the equanimity of stillness of the mind retreated from what's agitating thanks for the good question gail yeah robin Well, the, it's the same thing with loving kindness. You know, we wish somebody well-being, let, let's say with the metta practice. But the point of the metta practice is to experience kindness. But by wishing them kindness is the proximate cause for realizing the state of kindness. And so it's, in, it's similar in the sense by reflecting on equanimity, by wishing equanimity, we experience equanimity. Well, but that's just another way of saying equanimity. Yeah, here's the ones in uh, Sharon's book. And uh, I think we sent that out, Jan. Thanks, Jan, for making the copy. I sent it out a couple days ago. So she offers, may we all accept things as they are, which is just a, a different version of equanimity. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. And the traditional phrase is, all beings are owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. And I really just changed that a little bit because their happiness, our happiness, their happiness depends on their actions, but it's not just their actions. Our happiness or unhappiness or your unhappiness and happiness depend upon your actions and many other innumerable causes and conditions, not upon my wishes. So I just, I, I, I really, because that can sound a little judgmental when we just say your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions. And I thought it's just for me personally that it's a little better expanded. So your happiness and unhappiness depend upon causes and conditions which, of course, your actions are part of those causes and conditions. Yeah, and this mine is just a suggestion, and there's a lot of room for creativity. So I, you know, encourage everybody just to experiment, see what works for them. You have uh, the phrases in Sharon's book. Um, all I have also for the past courses, and I guess for the equanimity course, I mean the appreciative joy course earlier, I sent out my practice instructions. It also has a number of other phrases, including some that uh, Kamala uses, and that so you can take a look at that too. And I'll send out the one I gave tonight in the email that will go out tomorrow morning so that people who are interested. For equanimity. Yeah, it included all four of the Brahma Viharas, so it has phrases for all four of the earlier instructions that I sent out in uh, four weeks ago. Yeah, Louise. Yeah. Um, like I had to sort of say, okay, now I'm going to do this. And I just am, you know, I'm going to practice that particular thing. And I'm just wondering if, the, if there's like a skillful way of dealing with that sort of tension. 
Yeah. Well, first remember, um, for each of the Brahma Viharas, you know, the, the formal practice is laid out in the Vasudhi Magga, so written several hundred years after the time of the Buddha by Buddha Gosen. So he has a very formulaic way of presenting it. And part of that formal way of presenting it, he tells you the order to do it. So for equanimity, the order is working with a neutral person. So a person who you don't know a lot about and you don't, they're not necessarily someone who's experiencing a lot of success or joy or a lot of suffering. So we start there because it's relatively easy. So one answer to your question, Louise, is you can always go back to a more neutral person. But if you decide for whatever reason you want to stay with a person who you're pretty clear of their suffering, then you have two options. One is to make it more of a compassion practice with a, a flavor of equanimity in the compassion phrase, like, I care about your suffering, but things are the way that they are now. Still, I care about your suffering. Now, and then take a break and then do it again. I, 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 I know your suffering and I care about the suffering, but things are the way that they are now. And you could add something too, like, may your heart be at ease with the conditions of your life. So that you you know you're incorporating the equanimity with the compassion. So don't be afraid to sort of bring that in. And the same thing is if you're going through your equanimity categories and you come you just bring somebody to mind, it feels appropriate to bring somebody to mind who's just having a lot of success. And you might need to bring in some of the appreciative joy flavor as you continue understanding that things are unfolding lawfully and your happiness and unhappiness is also unfolding lawfully. Still, may your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And the other option is just to do the equanimity practice, you know, and to let your heart be tenderized by the suffering, but really stay, you know, like see if you can stay in that neutral place, that equanimous place, this vast perspective that now you're suffering, another time you may be really happy. And that, and even take it beyond this particular lifetime. Like somebody may be in a particular situation where they're not, they're unlikely. At least it's hard for us to conceive that things are going to turn around for them. But we can take a really vast perspective. Like maybe there are an infinite number of lifetimes for this being, past, future. So just this understanding that your lives are unfolding lawfully. There will be times of extreme happiness and ease and times of real pain and suffering. And I care about all of this. May you relate to this whole unfolding with wisdom and equanimity or something like that. Hey, Julian. What's the law of lawfully? Hmm? What is the law in lawfully? Karma? Yeah, karma. Yeah, well, conditionality is just a more refined understanding of karma, cause and effect. Yeah, so that's the law. Like in Buddhism, that's the law of cause and effect. That it isn't a random universe. There isn't a a divine being that's pulling the strings. But there is this interdependent web of causes and conditions. And understanding this, understanding karma, which is pretty easy for even us ignorant human beings, we can all, people without deep insight, can have a sense of karma. So this is a very approachable step toward wisdom. And then insight is just the refinement of the understanding of cause and effect to the point where we see that the lawful unfolding is completely impersonal. That's sort of the culmination of insight into cause and effect. But right now we just see that when I treat my wife this way, she acts this way, you know, treats me this way. Or when I'm, you know, greedy, then this is what happens to me in life. So that's a very self-centered approach to karma, but it works on that level. You know, from a self point of view, karma works. It's a really powerful teacher for us. Any other thoughts about the formal equanimity practice? Great. And I just recommend at the, as you probably have seen already, 
at the end of each of the chapters we've used in uh, Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness, she gives a two-page instruction, you know. And just remember, you know, I like to remember that there are three parts. We're feeling the heart center. So we want to notice energetically what's happening in the heart. But that doesn't mean we're controlling it, but we're just observing it. And one of the reasons we're observing the heart, as well as repeating the phrases, as well as remembering the person or the group, is that when the feeling of equanimity is quite strong, because we're aware of that, of that then we can let, temporarily let go of the words, even let go of the image of the person or the people, and just be with the feeling, the experience of equanimity, when, as long as it's strong. And then if it fades, then we pick up the more gross aspect of the practice, which is doing our push-ups, of remembering the person, saying the phrase in the mind, and connecting with the meaning of the words. And then doing it again, remembering the person, sort of taking that vast view of their life as an unfolding stream of causes and conditions, saying the phrase, the phrase that we like, that we can connect with, connect with the meaning. What's the celebration? I think it's the, the Native American Day. Huh? Instead of Columbus Day. But uh, Columbus Day. <laughs> Seems more appropriate to cry, probably. <laughs> so, equanimity. So, I, I mentioned a few things about this. And... Um, One of the things we can look at if you want to experiment with the other Brahma-Viharas, like I mentioned in response to Louise, you might just see how equanimity informs and strengthens the other three Brahma-Viharas so that you could do some metta practice. And then as you're doing it, you know, in the way that you like to do it, just in some way bring in the flavor of equanimity or do a little equanimity and then do the metta practice. Because, you know, the near enemy of metta, loving kindness, is being attached to the person you're sending out your good wish to. So, um, that attachment, you know, what that's really about is you, you like, you want them to really get something. But we're attached. We're attached to outcomes. Like, you really want them to be happy. You really want them. And that clinging to them getting, becoming better off, you know, needs to be teased out. So equanimity actually helps metta to bloom. Same with compassion. It makes more sense with compassion how important equanimity is. Because if we have an agenda that my wishing well, may your suffering cease, may you be free from the suffering, any attachment to that really gets in the way of getting close, really meeting the person. It's actually a kind of insult or violence to like expect them to get better, expect their suffering to go away. So how can we care about their suffering without being dependent on them being free from suffering? Can we really care? Can we be supportive even if their suffering, their pain, their difficulty doesn't go away? Maybe it will get worse. But can we still be a support, be close, be unafraid? And joy, too, like not to be confused by the joy. So I would encourage all of us, you know, formally and then informally, too, as we just go about our day, you know, when we're feeling joyful, just reflect a little bit on causes and conditions, like how this is just part of the natural unfolding of things, and now it's really beautiful, and now it's really challenging. And I care about it all. I'm... I... uh, I accept this natural and personal unfolding. The other thing to remember about equanimity is the near enemy of equanimity. Just to review them, I did it already for metta. The near enemy is attachment. The near enemy for compassion is some kind of pity where we're, you know, we're focused on somebody's suffering, but on some level we're afraid of it like that it's somehow contagious or that it's like a stain. You know, their cancer, their loss, 
is uh, it's some kind of blemish in life as opposed to just the natural part of life. So that's the near enemy. It looks like we're compassionate, but actually we're trying to clean up the mess on some maybe subtle way, maybe not so obvious, but we want it to go away as if this doesn't belong in life. And then the near enemy for appreciative joy we talked about a couple of weeks ago is exuberance, where the mind is like getting caught up in the energy of joy. And we're losing touch with connecting with the happiness of that other person. And we're, in a sense, uh, tripping over our own, you know, and whipping up our own exuberance. Now, for equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. And so we want to be on the lookout for, like, you know, and I notice this a lot for me, um, just different times of using equanimity almost as a defense to prevent or to make me feel safe not responding, not engaging. This is how it is. It's a messy world. What came to mind actually during the sit tonight, maybe the first sit, I remember once when Wynn and I were driving um, over by uh, Lowry Park, somewhere in that area where all those freeway intersections are, kind of a no man land, no person's land. And there was this person lying on the side of the street. And uh, we, uh, I was just, you know, I kind of looked and thought, oh, this person is probably drunk. And uh, I would have driven on probably, but when made me stop, I forget who was driving, but anyway, we stopped and we got out. And yes, the person was drunk and we got in. But I, I remember... In hindsight, you know, looking back, just this attitude in my mind, like, well, this is what happens. You know, some people drink themselves silly, you know, and they, they're just sort of a mess. And, and it's like uh, a, a way to not feel responsible for trying to do something to help this person. We ended up driving them back. They were staying at, I think, was it at the Red Cross or the Salvation Army has a a place nearby where this person was living. So we got him in the car and got him back there. Um, but just that, I just noticed this kind of attitude. It's like, I felt like I was really connecting. Like I was showing up, I was seeing the person, I was connecting with my imagination of their suffering, but somehow feeling like not my responsibility to respond. And so this indifference is a near enemy for equanimity where we feel like we're connecting, we feel like we understand deeply how these things can unfold like this, how this person can be in this pickle, how this person is doing great, this person is not doing so great. But it, it's really masquerading as a way of not having to figure out how to show up, you know, a way to avoid getting our hands dirty or taking chances. And so just be on the lookout. Because equanimity is actually used to get closer. All four of these Brahma-Viharas, like I said right at the beginning, are ways to get closer to life as it actually is. And it's that getting closer to life as it actually is that is the proximate cause for the expansion, the blooming of the state. Often the uh, equanimity. Um, so sometimes people misunderstand, like sort of this looking on. And I think actually it gets translated this way sometimes. Upeka, the Pali word, gets translated as a, a looking on. But uh, a friend of mine who's a Pali scholar uh, sent an email once to a group I'm part of. And he, he said that, you know, when you look at the roots of Upeka, it really means to look into and to, he said, to turn in an unflinching way to the way that it is. So it really has this penetrating quality. And of course, the only way we can really connect to life, whether it's confusing or messy or ambiguous, 
the only way we can really turn toward, open up, is when the heart, the mind is balanced. And that balance, you know, when we talk about balance in Buddhism, what allows for the balance is wisdom. It means that we're not in de- the mind, the seeing isn't in denial. So we're seeing, like when we're seeing any experience, we're seeing the changing nature. We're seeing how impermanent and fluid everything is. We're seeing how whenever the mind fixates, it hurts. There's dukkha. We're seeing how impersonal the unfolding, the changing nature of things are. These are the three characteristics that are revealed. You know, that things are conditional. They're changing, unfolding, that any clinging, any grasping hurts, and this unfolding is impersonal. And so this is what gives the mind balance. Without insight, there's no balance. Unless, like I was mentioning to Gail's question, the mind is really retreated. So when we retreat from the messiness, the changing conditions of life, and we get to a very quiet, retreated place, then we have some equanimity. But that equanimity is arising because the mind is retreated from the movement the conditional movement of life, right? We've gone to someplace very pleasant, a nice park. We're sitting on a comfortable bench, feeling the warm sun on the skin, watching the wind blow the leaves off the tree. And our problems seem a million miles away. The fact that we're living in an aging body that can have a stroke at any time, you know, been hearing more stories of people at our age, you know, having strokes and their life forever changed, assuming they survive, let alone all the other things that can happen. But we're sitting there on the bench, feeling the sun, watching the leaves, and we're a million miles away from those sorts of things, from starvation in Somalia and the crazy politics in this country and elsewhere and And we're just in the sound of the leaves and the feeling of the sun and the beautiful sights. So this is an equanimity of being retreated. Still, the world is still unfolding lawfully. But the mind actually is absorbed into the happiness, into the happiness of non-affliction. Right? The mind is uh, seeing, experiencing the moment as being beautiful. And see, here's the thing about concentration. The mind isn't investigating impermanence, dukkha, and the impersonal nature. It's basically converted the sights and sounds and smells and thoughts to a very beautiful object, relatively stable object, which is basically something like, this is really nice, right? So it has a thought, this is really nice. And it's concentrating on that thought. And that thought and the concentration together make a really nice feeling, which we call bliss, inner happiness. So then we got this nice thought, this is really nice, combined with this nice inner feeling of bliss. And that's your concentration object. And this is what we mean by being retreated. So there's a lot of equanimity there, but it's not the same as equanimity when we're right in the middle of the mess. Does that make sense? So we want to understand both and really rely on both. We need both. We need to retreat. We need to have pleasant, beautiful states of mind to retreat into, to be refreshed by and to be uh, healed. I mean, it's really healing to retreat in those different ways. I mean, that's just, I gave just one example, but there are many examples, including the Brahma Viharas. Doing these four reflections on love and compassion and joy and equanimity for me and for a lot of us is one of the easiest ways to retreat from the world in a wholesome way. And it has the added benefit as when we go back into the messy world, we've created an imprint in the mind. We, In that very concentrated, in that retreated place when the mind is very refined and protected, 
We've created a deep imprint. This is a lawful universe. Everything is changing and unfolding lawfully due to causes and conditions. Happiness and unhappiness is coming and going lawfully due to causes and conditions. Still, I really care about this unfolding world, your unfolding life, my unfolding life. May we all relate with wisdom and equanimity. That becomes a deep imprint in the mind. So when we go back into the world, then it arises, just like compassion arises. It's just if we do it in that refined, concentrated state, then when we do meet compassion, uh, suffering, all of a sudden, the feeling comes up. I care about you. I care about this pain. May, may you, may I find a way to stay close to the way that it is now. May we realize the heart that can be okay with this pain right now. I mean, that's what compassion, that's the practice of compassion. So we're in the Brahma Viharas as a formal concentration practice. We're creating this deep imprint in the mind. It really takes care of us. And this is, this is how we realize that the formal practice has made a, uh, an impact. Like Sharon Salzberg tells a funny story of back in the early days of practicing at IMS. She was doing her own retreat in one of the rooms there. And then, for some reason, she got called away in the middle of a retreat. She was just having a really frustrating time doing the four Brahma Viharas. And I forget exactly why she had to leave in a rush, but she was in the bathroom packing up her stuff, and she dropped uh, one of her toiletry bottles, and it smashed and broke all over the floor. And she said something, you know, just instinctively said something like, you know, you clumsy fool, or something like that. And then because of the imprint she had been making in practice, and I care about you, <laughs> right? And, you know, just that, that momentum, that change of attitude that we deeply imprint through this formal practice of, you know, setting that intention over and over again. This is why it's so important when you're doing it formally to just stick with the phrases that you like and really mean what you say because you're setting an intention in the mind. You're cutting a groove. You're replacing the old grooves, you idiot, with new grooves. I care about you. I care about life. I care about how easy it is to be hateful. You know, that's a much nicer groove to have in our mind than just the simple, I hate you. And you'll see that, you know, without equanimity, nothing works in life. So that's another thing to notice just informally throughout the day. Notice when you lose the equanimity. Notice how rigid, ossified the mind becomes. Everything is tight. Equanimity is like the sort of primeval lubricant. It really helps us get through. And, you know, it's often uh, equated with wisdom. But in particular, in terms of the Brahma Viharas, it's the wisdom that allows the heart to connect when it isn't able to connect because the situation is ambiguous or confusing or too intense, too intense because there's so much joy, too intense because there's so much suffering. So equanimity is sort of, it's all about, in terms of the practice we're doing these four weeks, finding a way for the heart to connect when it's having a hard time connecting with the way that it is. Let me just read a little bit uh, from Pema Children's book, um, when Things Fall Apart. It's a nice book if you haven't read it. She's got a chapter on opinions. And this is from this chapter on opinions. Just as the Buddha taught, it is, it is important to see, suffering as, to see suffering as suffering. We're not talking about ignoring or keeping quiet. When we don't buy into our opinions and, and solidify the sense of enemy, we will accomplish something. If we don't get swept away by our outrage, then we will see the cause of suffering more clearly. That is how the cessation of suffering evolves. 
This process requires enormous patience. And patience is a a good uh, companion for equanimity. It is important to remember that when we're out there non-aggressively working for reform, that even if our particular issue doesn't get resolved, we are adding peace to the world. We have to do our best and at the same time give up all hope of fruition. One piece of advice that Don Juan gave to Carlos Castaneda was to do everything as if it were the only thing in the world that mattered, while at the same time knowing that it doesn't matter at all. That attitude leads to more appreciation and less burnout because we do the job wholeheartedly and we care. On the other hand, each day is a new day. We're not too future-oriented. Although we're going on, I'm sorry, although we're going in a direction and the direction is to help diminish suffering, we have to realize that part of helping is keeping our clarity of mind, keeping our hearts and mind open. And that was really, I thought, the most important point in terms of equanimity. We have to realize that part of helping is keeping our clarity of mind, keeping our hearts and minds open. So this is the thing about equanimity. When we're faced with suffering, when we're faced with joy, when we're faced with just life tumbling forward, it's easy to lose our clarity. And once we lose our clarity, we're not helpful. We're not going to do anybody any good. So equanimity, developing equanimity is what allows us to maintain clarity. Without equanimity, there's no clarity. Because without equanimity, then we have an agenda. An agenda distorts clarity. And I'll just finish this paragraph. We have to realize that part of helping is keeping our clarity of mind, keeping our hearts and and our minds open. When circumstances make us feel like closing our eyes and shutting our ears and making other people into enemy, social action can be the most advanced practice. How to continue to speak and act without aggression is an enormous challenge. The way to start is to begin to notice our opinions. What I like about this point that Pema Chodron is making and just generally about the Brahma Viharas is this tradition of practice that the Buddha set in motion. It isn't giving us absolutes like this is how you should behave or this is who you should be. It's giving us skillful means. It's saying cultivate equanimity and then right action will flow from that. Cultivate loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity and you'll start making more skillful choices. It's not about saying you should do this or you shouldn't do that as much as developing these wholesome ways of connecting. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. Any comments about equanimity? And just in general, one theme people might want to share in the last 10 minutes is just examples from your own life about moments of real connection. So there you are in life, tumbling forward, causes and conditions happening. And just remembering times when there was a a profound sensitivity, profound connection without reactivity. So basically sharing moments of equanimity, profound connection without reactivity. So any thoughts about that or thoughts when the opposite was happening? Connection and reactivity. And then the reactivity in the way of connection. Yeah, Mimi. Um, my dad died in Right through the middle. 
Well, it's, I think it's true with all of these states that they're contagious. So if we have, if we're developing equanimity in terms of the loss, how can we not, how can it not spread and affect in terms of our attitude with traffic? Yeah, thanks, Mimi. Judy? Yeah. Well, you were doing it to you. I mean, really, that's exactly what happens in those situations. I mean, I know it well too, and uh, it's really we're doing it to ourselves because we're afraid of what we're seeing in that person, and our heart closes, and we get tight. We feel like we need to be energetically defended. And at that point, what I would have done if I had the wherewithal is I would have understood that I, I'm suffering. I am suffering right now. I'm afraid of being around this person and I'm suffering. And I care about this difficult situation. And I'm willing to do whatever needs to be done to take care of myself and to take care of this other person. So that I'm not feeling like, well, I should be able to connect with this person. First, the, the first and foremost, can I connect with my own discomfort right now? And can I respond appropriately to it? You know, whatever that might be. You know, I have to go home. i got to go use the bathroom. Hey, can we take a walk? You know, so anything basically to change because what happens when we're in that situation and feeling really put upon by the person we're around is we're not doing them any good with that attitude and we're not doing ourselves any good in that situation. So it's really important to try to do something differently to change it. You know, whether it's leaving or changing the environment, bringing a third person in, um, but somehow changing the dynamic, I think is important. And this is where we have to be careful with putting a should on us. Like, well, I should be able to connect with this person suffering. But, but why? Sometimes we can't... Some because it's an impersonal world that's unfolding due to causes and conditions, right? And part of those causes and conditions, a lot of those causes and conditions we're not in control of. So our capacity to fully show up with this person suffering and to meet them where they're at and to be unflinching, that isn't in our control. 
we may be able to do that at some t- moments and we may not be able to do it in other moments due to the particular causes and conditions in that moment. So we can't demand compassion. You know, compassion doesn't arise on demand. It arises when the causes and conditions are, are just right. So it's fine to prompt it, but then if it's not happening, it's not happening, you know. Yeah, other ex- experiences or thoughts that come to mind? Maybe time for one or two more? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that sounds right. And and the the way in might be just something um, like replacing surprise with equanimity. Like we're surprised when conditions change. But equanimity is all about the natural um, unfolding of causes and condition, conditions that nobody's in charge of. And so, of course, things can change any which way because there are these so many innumerable forces at work, at play here. And she was connecting, you were connecting with her for a while, and now there's a different dynamic. And this is really the very definition of equanimity. It's the not being surprised by unfolding because we know it's unfolding lawfully due to causes and conditions of which we don't see them all. So it doesn't surprise us when things turn this way or turn that way because we know it's always been this way. Things have always been turning, twisting, going this way and that way due to their own causes and conditions. It has to be real quick, Paul. Yeah, well, I just want to follow up on that. But like when you look at um, the state of the world like as a human race, the species and what we're doing as a planet, and, uh, maybe we're on the brink of our own destruction. I think we tipped 7 billion already was in the paper yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot or maybe. Yeah, well, my point is that um, when you were talking about indifference being the shadow of equanimity, sometimes I find that I can look at the world and uh, global warming, all these catastrophes that are sort of happening as a collective karma. And it's hard for me also to accept at the same time impersonal causes and conditions. Because it seems like, you know, as humans, we have direct participation in the uh, you know, the karma of our planet, so to speak. So I don't know. Sometimes it's a little but isn't that mind. but isn't that also one of the many causes and conditions? This sense of responsibility 
the sense of wanting to take care of, that's also part of what's at work, at play here, right? And it's one of the, I would say, one of the positive strands of what's unfolding is this consciousness, like uh, people often point to that moment when the orbiting spacecraft, you know, took the picture, photograph of the Earth, and all of a sudden, you know, I was just a maybe 10-year-old kid at the time, but they they talk about, uh, historians and other people talk about that very palatable shift of consciousness where we could now conceive of this planet as a being, as a something to take care of because we had this visual perspective. Oh my God, we're just this little island floating in space. We better take care of it. So that's also part of what's unfolding now. And it's very easy to point to all the negative things that are unfolding, but there are a lot of positive things unfolding too. And around this perspective, this consciousness of all of us here in the same soup together, you know, how to, what kind of choices do we want to make? So I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it dismisses responsibility because it understands that we don't control everything, but we're part of it. And our attitude is part of what's unfolding. And this is the whole truth of karma, you know. Karma exists in an absolute level and in a relative level. In an absolute level, it's all just impersonal causes and conditions happening. But when we're understanding things personally, like I care about this planet, then we're over here. Then we're in this, this realm of what we do matters. You know, and people often mix up the absolute and the relative. Where we're in this, we're taking this vast view of things. Expansion of the universe, contraction of the universe, you know. But that's, we're not a human being who has this touching relationship with this blue planet. That means we're over here. And that means we're operating uh, in the, with this sense of personal responsibility to do what we can. And in a way, it's funny, it doesn't, they don't contradict each other. We can have that absolute view and that relative view, and they're not contradictory. Right, and that's in the guided meditation. Your first line was, the universe is lawful. Mm-hmm. Still, I care. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a good place to end. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciating being here together. And this wholesome aspiration that our lives and our practice be part of the causes and conditions supporting real peace, real freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone. It'd be really nice for someone next Monday to give a short three or four minute talk on Donna, how we operate here at the center. So anybody who's been around for a couple years who feels like they've reflected on it, would like to share their own personal reflections. Anybody interested in doing that? Put someone on the spot. Thanks, Judy. So, uh, you know, three to five minutes, that would be great. And uh, other thanks to Patty, who's opening and closing tonight. Uh, Casey and a bunch of people are building a fence this weekend. If you want to get involved, you can check in with Julian. He'll give you the ins and out of that. There's going to be a workshop on transforming the pain of loss and regret that I'll be leading on the 29th, an unannounced program. Uh, Brother Fop Day, some of you know Adrian Steer, who's been in and out of the community for years. The last eight years, he's been a monk in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. Wonderful man. He's going to be having a program here on Friday the 28th, just talking about how they practice in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, mostly just the question and answers and discussion. Friday night the 28th, that's a drop-in program. I wanted to mention that a, a dear friend of Common Ground and of mine, a Wendell Phillips, a young man who's been part of the community in and out over the years when he's been in town, died suddenly on Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, so just to keep him in mind, he's the man who made the little table in the community room where the altar is. Um, he was recently living up in Virginia, Minnesota, so he hasn't been around very much in the last year. Other thoughts? 
announcements. Yeah, Matt. I got a text from Kevin Friedberg at 5 p.m. <clears throat> he says it's on. <laughs> His wife is pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, Andrea at the hospital. Great. Send us an email if anybody hears how it all goes. That would be good to get it in the book and keep it. Uh, Judy, your bowl's downstairs on the table. Thanks for that. And uh, Jean, if I could just check in with you briefly. Any other announcements? Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. There is a day-long retreat on Saturday if anybody wants to join in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.